Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith, and you are still in your sins. Then also, sorry, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we just ask God to teach us today um, and lead us through his word. Father God, we just sang about how vast your love is for us. It's so vast, the only thing we can compare it to are things that seem vast to us but are finite, like the ocean or like space and the universe and the heavens. And yet, God, you made those things. They are finite, but your love for us, for your people, has no measure. Father, would you help us this morning not to just sing those words or say those words, but Lord, we even long for this morning to experience the truth of those words. Lord, we long today to not just intellectually know that you love us, but to tangibly feel and experience your love for us. And so, Father, we ask for your help. As we come to your word today, we need you to teach us. We need you to lead us and care for us and stir up our numb, cold hearts this morning. Would you awaken us today by your Spirit? Would you breathe on us and bring life to us again this morning? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I listen to um, a lot of sports talk radio when I'm driving in the car. Um, either that or podcasts. But if it's the radio, it's usually sports talk radio. It's just, I find it, it kind of distracts me on my drive and I, and I enjoy it. And there's been a, a famous sports radio host in Los Angeles who's been, uh, he's actually not on the radio anymore, but uh, he's been very outspoken about some of his religious upbringing and his religious beliefs. You're like, how does that work its way into sports talk radio? I don't know, but it does all the time. He's very outspoken about the fact that he grew up Jewish. He was raised in a Jewish home and Jewish culture, and yet he finds himself as an adult today as a very uh, proud atheist, and he would bring that up quite often. And one day, he was uh, leading a radio show in the morning, and it was the, the morning after a really tragic event in our nation. Um, I, I don't remember exactly, but I, I believe it was uh, a, a tragic shooting where there were some, some deaths involved, just a very awful situation. And he begins this radio show in the morning um, just expressing, expressing his anger, his sorrow, his frustration, and he used his show to be able to vehemently put down these acts and call them evil and call them wicked and wrong. And he expressed how he was outraged about these things. And as I'm listening to this driving, I found myself getting quite outraged. I started yelling at the radio thinking maybe he can hear me. And I started shouting at the radio saying, you can't say that. The reason why I was saying that is because this man is a very proud atheist and he says it all the time. And if you are an atheist, 
you do not have the ability to call something wrong or evil. With an atheistic worldview, there is no objective morality. Everything is simply survival of the fittest. Even the most tragic deaths and scenarios are simply what happens. You cannot express outrage. You can't call something wrong or evil because there is no such thing as morality. We are all just simply trying to get everything for ourselves, all the resources for ourselves. It's just survival of the fittest. So I yelled at my radio and I said, say that. You don't get to say that. Either be an atheist or don't. But you can't hold both of those views. The truth is, all of us tend to hold competing, contradictory views at times. In fact, there are many Christians today who are holding views that are entirely incompatible with Christianity. I'd venture to guess that there are even many among us here today that call ourselves Christians, and yet we are holding to viewpoints that contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a study that was done by LifeWay Research. They do this study about every two years. And so they just did another one in, in 2022. They call it the state of theology in the nation. And they look at Christians and non Christians alike. And they use this category called evangelicals. And it has nothing to do with your voting patterns, it has simply to do with you affirm the truths that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation that you are passionate about sharing the gospel with people that do not believe that hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. Among evangelicals in this survey in 2022, just two years ago, 56% of evangelicals affirmed this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Essentially to say Jesus is not the only way to God. Other gods are okay. 56% of Christians affirmed that. 73% of Christians affirmed this, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Folks, that's just grade A all-natural heresy right there. It is false teaching, this belief that Jesus is not the eternal God, but he was at one point created by God. That, that heresy has been around for centuries It's been refuted by the the church for centuries. Jesus is not created by God. He is God. He is the eternal God. And yet in this study, 73%, 73% of Christians said, yeah, Jesus is a created being. Friends, if you believe that, you don't believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. 57% of Christians said, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That contradicts everything the Bible teaches about our nature, that we are born sinful. We are not good. There is no one righteous, not even one. 26% of Christians said this, the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Yikes, indeed. Here's what the creators of the survey said about the findings. They said this, the rejection of the divine authorship of the Bible is quote, the clearest and most consistent trend over the eight years of data. This view makes it easy for individuals to accept the biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or cultural values. This is the trend of our nation, 
and even among those who call themselves followers of Christ, to deny the, that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative Word of God, which allows us to simply say, well, we like this truth in the Bible, but we don't like this one because it doesn't agree with us. If there was an ancient theological survey that was put out in the city of Corinth in the first century, it would have shown a large percentage of the people that call themselves Christians would affirm this, there's no physical resurrection of the dead. To which Paul is flabbergasted by. How could you possibly call yourself a follower of Jesus and yet say there is no physical resurrection of the dead? You cannot, is the whole point of this section right here. The resurrection of the dead is a pillar doctrine of the Christian faith. It is essential. In fact, I think you could in a way say this, that Christianity is vulnerable. Meaning this, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, the entire thing comes crumbling down. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, all of it comes crashing down. In fact, there are many over the years who have discovered this about Christianity, that if you could come and disprove this one thing, the whole thing is false. And yet many of these folks set out on this exploration to disprove the resurrection only to discover, uh-oh, it seems like it actually happened. It seems like there's actually quite good evidence and reasoning to believe that this happened. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, it all comes crumbling down. But the opposite is also true. It works the other way. If it did happen, if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, then we have rock-solid assurance that it's all true. Everything he says is true. What the Bible says is true. If the resurrection really did happen, we have rock-solid assurance. And so Paul is pleading with this church, pleading with them to cling to the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore the resurrection of all who believe. He wants to actually show them in this section the seriousness of denying it. If Jesus is dead, and he's going to highlight a few things, if Jesus is dead, these five things will come crumbling down. But I want us to also see the opposite, that because he is alive, these five things are rock-solid true. Case closed. We can bank on these things. The first one is this. We see it in verse 14. If Jesus is dead, then Christians, our faith and our preaching is in vain, meaning it is worthless. It is meaningless. Look what he says, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. How could that be? Well, Christianity is not a mere, well, despite what many would say, Christianity is not merely a go-to-heaven-when-you-die religion. Christianity is first and foremost a resurrection religion. Think with me about the story of the Bible. The entire story of the Bible is about a God who is actively working to redeem his people from their sins. You open the book and you cannot get to the third chapter before you see everything go horribly wrong and God promising that one day he will make everything right. He will redeem his people from their sins and from that point on, he promises that one day he's going to send someone, a redeemer, a, a savior. And year after year, he unveils more and more of this plan. And the people, God's people, get more and more filled with anticipation. 
When will this Redeemer come? When will this Rescuer come to restore us? And so God gives promise after promise and prophecy after prophecy and miracle after miracle, saying again and again, trust me, trust me, I will be your Savior, I will be your provider, I'm sending you a Messiah. And for centuries, God's people are longing for that day to come. And finally it comes. Jesus sends his one and only eternal son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live life in our skin, to live a perfect life, never sinning, to heal the sick and raise the dead and make the blind see and to preach good news to people that are sinners and to call people to repentance and faith in him. And just when it looked like everything was seemingly going fairly well, he was betrayed and crucified and buried and it looked like the whole thing just blew up. Jesus, we thought you were the one. We thought you were the Messiah. You did all these miracles. You had this authoritative teaching. You said you were the Messiah and now you're dead. And the whole thing looks like it's a massive failure. Except you know the story if you are a follower of Jesus. You know that Jesus didn't stay dead. You know that he wasn't a victim you know that this was part of the plan. It was part of the eternal plan of God. Before God even created the world, he planned a salvation story that involved the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It was a plan for Jesus to die as our substitute, to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. And if he stayed dead, none of it would have mattered. But instead, he rose. He conquered. He defeated sin and defeated death and defeated Satan. The story is Jesus wins because he rose from the dead. And then he gives this invitation to say, all of you who will come to me and believe in me and follow me, that resurrection will also be for you to where you will have newness of life. You will have a life where sin cannot destroy you. Death cannot destroy you. Satan cannot destroy you. You will have what God calls eternal life, fullness of joy, reconciliation with God. The invitation is to throw all of your hope and trust on Jesus, to bank it all on him, that he is the savior, he is the redeemer, and he is the king who's coming again to take us to true resurrection life. This is the message of Christianity. It all hinges on resurrection. If Christ is not raised, as one person said, everything based on that belief collapses in a heap of broken dreams. But, because Jesus did raise from the dead, our faith and our preaching is not in vain. In fact, it's well-grounded. It's well-grounded. If he rose, it's all true. And if it's all true, it means he really is worthy of all of our hope and our trust. I'm sure you can probably remember, if not the first time, a, one of the times in which somebody really let you down. You really trusted somebody. Somebody gave you their word and you believed them, and you banked on it, and they let you down. It's awful. Maybe some of us have experienced that and, and vowed to never trust anybody again. The human heart longs to find someone we can count on no matter what. Through it all, 
We want to find that one person who's truly trustworthy, who's truly strong enough to hold our hopes and our dreams. Someone who, if we trust them, it won't be in vain. Some of us think we'll find that in a spouse. To which, if you're married, you know, yeah, that doesn't work out super well. Some of us think we'll find that in a friend. A truly close friend that knows us and walks with us and has been with us. But if you're a friend and you have a friend, you know it's not usually how it goes. But because Jesus is alive, it means that he has proven he's the only one who is worthy of our trust. He will never let you down. That doesn't mean he won't do things that you don't like, but he will never truly let you down. When you call on him, he will always show up. He's never out of the office. He's never on vacation. He's never too busy. He's never too absent. He's never too disinterested with your boring, dull life. He is there all the time. He's strong, and you can hold on to him and know that he will hold on to you. You can bank everything on Jesus, and he will give you a thousandfold in return because he's alive. Because he's alive, our faith and our preaching of this message is not vain. It is well-grounded. It is something that you can bank on. There is good reason to believe it. He continues in verse 15 to say, If Jesus is dead, then the apostles misrepresent God. He says in verse 15, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, if Jesus is dead, then me, Paul, and Peter, and James, and John, and all the other apostles, we've been spreading a lie and stamping God's name on it. They're guilty of the most egregious of sins of, at this point, through their teachings, leading billions upon billions astray leading billions upon billions to trust in a false God who can't deliver them from their sins, all the while giving them assurance that they're fine and they're safe. That would be the most egregious of things to do. But it would mean that they're not just wrong about Jesus, that they're also wrong about everything that they teach. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the Bible tells us that our faith as Christians is built upon the ministry and the teaching of the apostles. The disciples who were with Jesus plus a few others like James and Paul, our faith is built off of their ministry and their teaching. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says this really beautifully for us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says this starting in verse 18. For through him, through Jesus, this is the teaching of the apostles. Listen, for through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This whole faith 
is built off of the teaching that God gave to the apostles about Jesus. He's given them authoritative teaching from the Bible to build the foundation of our church. The truth about who we are and how we have life in Christ and how we can be unified and brought into fellowship with God, it's all banking on these teachings. And so if they're wrong about Jesus and they've been misrepresenting God by telling you that Jesus rose from the dead, well, then all their teaching needs to be thrown in the garbage. It matters that Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus is alive, it means that the apostles actually accurately reveal God's heart to us. Okay? So if Jesus didn't rise, all their teaching is garbage. They're misrepresenting God. They're spreading lies and stamping God's name on it. But if Jesus is alive, it means that all of their teaching actually shows us the heart of God. And if that's true, we better cling to these teachings. It has massive implications. It means that we can trust that the Bible is actually showing us God's heart and God's words. No matter what we think about it, no matter what our culture thinks about it, if he's alive, it means these words are trustworthy. And we're being told every single day the Bible is outdated. We're being told every day the Bible is out of touch with culture. It only applies to a culture 2,000 years ago. Half the stuff in the New Testament doesn't apply to our modern day because we're enlightened and we're different and we know how to do things better than they did 2,000 years ago. And we need to run the Bible through the filter of our progressive culture. And our values, that's what we're being told all the time. But because Jesus is alive and he's given his message and teaching to his apostles who have written it down, it means the Bible is actually trustworthy. If Jesus is alive, it means he is able to instruct us, doesn't it? If Jesus is alive, does he not have the authority to tell us what is good and what is evil? Does he not have the authority to tell us how to live our lives? If Jesus is alive, it means we can trust that the sexual ethic he gives us in the Bible is good, even if everything around us is screaming that it's bad. If Jesus is alive, it means we can trust what he says about gender. We can trust what he says about forgiveness. We can trust what he says about how to spend our money. We can trust what he says about how to use our mouths and our words. And yet, I wonder how many of us call ourselves Christians and we look at this book and we say, well, we'll I'll filter it through my lenses. Let me run it through my filters. Does it agree with my personal values? Does it agree with what I think is good and right and loving? Does it, does it agree with the way I think I should spend my time and my money and my resources? Does it agree with the, what, what makes me feel good? Friends, we cannot call ourselves Christians and view the Bible that way. And yet it is commonplace for us. Either to do that purposefully or to just do it ignorantly because we don't care to know what God's word One passage right here, Ephesians chapter 5. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Sexual immorality and all 
impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. He says, do not become partners with sons of disobedience. Do not take part in the works of darkness, but instead expose them. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Clear that many of us as Christians are saying, yeah, we follow Jesus, we love Jesus, but we'll do whatever we want with our bodies. We'll use our words however we want. We'll let crude joking and coarse joking come out of our mouths whenever we please. And then we'll stamp God's name on it to say, well, nobody's perfect, right? God has grace, grace upon grace. Friends, if Jesus is alive, it means the teaching we find in the New Testament written by the apostles is authoritative for us. It is actually revealing to us what God wants for you and what God calls us to. It means we ought to bank on the Bible and orient our lives around following Jesus according to how he tells us to do it. You want to know what God is like? You want to know his heart? You want to know his character? Here you go. Paul continues to say this, if Jesus is dead, we are still in our sins. That's a problem. If Jesus is dead, we're still in our sins. In verse 17, your faith is futile, meaning it is unproductive. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't produce anything, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is dead, there is no one on earth that has forgiveness or covering for their sins. Covering for your sins doesn't come from balancing out the scales with a bunch of goodness. Okay? God is not a judge that puts all of your good deeds on a scale, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. There's a bunch of people that believe that, but it's a baseless theology. Nowhere anywhere from the scriptures are we told that. We're told that we are all evil. No one is righteous, not even one. If we, if Jesus is dead, there is no covering for sins, no forgiveness, which means it will soon, wrath will soon come for you because someone has to pay for your sins. Now we don't, we, we tend to not like this idea. We tend to just think, well, but you know, God can just be, you know, he can just look at the good stuff and kind of overlook the bad stuff. But we all know that that's foolishness. Nobody that's just would ever do that, right? We talked about this often no judge would ever be able to hold their job if a criminal comes into their courtroom and they say, well, I know you murdered that man in the convenience store, but five years ago you volunteered for a local um, parks and rec department and did some park cleanup, and you've also been really kind to your, your in-laws, which I know is really hard, and so you, you did a great job on that. So you know what? We'll let this one slide because you've been pretty good in other areas of your life. We all know that that's absolute nonsense. It's silliness. Right? There has to be payment for the crimes. There has to be punishment for our sins. So someone will receive the wrath of God for your sins. And if Jesus is dead, it means that he didn't do it for you. And so it's coming for you, unless you find some covering.
Same is true as if your faith is not in Jesus. If your faith is not in Jesus, you're still in your sins too. And it's coming for you. In fact, the Bible would explicitly link our salvation from sins with the resurrection of Jesus. Look at a couple verses with me in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 says this, He who was delivered up for our trespasses, he was delivered up for our sins, and raised for our justification. Justification means God declares you as righteous. Okay? It, link, it says his resurrection was necessary for you to be forgiven of your sins. There's another one. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, his resurrection. The Bible has linked these two. So you can't just say Jesus died for your sins. If he didn't raise, he didn't die for your sins. You still got to pay for him. But the flip side is true. If he did rise, it actually means you're not still in your sins if you believe in him. They're actually forgiven. You're actually wiped clean. And when he says here, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, he's, he's conjuring up this picture of, of something being productive, right? You do one thing and it produces something else. Through faith in Jesus, we get something. Okay? It's not our works, but it's simply trusting in him. The object of our faith is so good and so worthy that when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, he forgives our sins. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's the message of Ephesians chapter 2, that it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, not through your efforts, not through your hard work, not through your determination, not through your activism. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Even the faith itself is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. By putting our faith in the right object, the person and work of Jesus, it's productive for us. It, for, he forgives our sins. And every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, longs to have our wrongs forgiven. There's not one of us in here who's righteous or good. Some of you have been going to church for a long time, but if we knew the extent of each other's sins, we would be disgusted with each other. If we could just run a log of our mental thoughts from the last week, none of us would want to be friends with anybody in this room anymore. And you know I'm right. We need our sins forgiven. And here's the thing. Jesus is the one that actually knows all your sins. All of them. In fact, he knows more of your sins than you do. Because there's plenty of things you've forgotten. Things you've done that you can't remember anymore. Thoughts that you've had that you don't even remember them anymore. Sins that you're just blind to, you don't even see them. But Jesus sees all of them and says, if, if you come to me with faith, I will forgive you for all of your sins. And I will accept you and love you. Do we not long for that to be true? Does not every single human being long for some relationship 
where you can find that. Where someone actually knows the whole you. Not 99% of you, but the whole you. And says, I love you. That's only found in Jesus. And because he's alive, it's true for everyone who puts their faith in him. You put your faith in Jesus today, you can know with assurance God says about you, I love you and accept you. Everything's forgiven. Everything. No matter how evil you think it is, it's forgiven. It's done. It's done away with. The Bible, the Bible says that God puts our sins behind his back. He sets them out of view. He forgets them. He chooses to no longer remember them anymore. Meaning, if you're a Christian in Christ, because Jesus is alive, it means your sins are forgiven. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees you as a precious daughter or a treasured son. He says, I love you. Sounds too good to be true. But if he's alive, it is. It is. He keeps going because there's just so much hanging on the resurrection. The fourth one, if Jesus is dead, everyone who has died trusting in him has perished. And that perished is this, this word that, that conjures up this idea of not just dying, but dying and then just being done. There's no hope left. You are dead and gone. You have truly perished. If Jesus is dead, everyone who died trusting in him has perished. If he didn't rise from the dead, neither can we. Which means, if you're a Christian and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you've got nothing beyond this life. Nothing. Now the sad reality is that there are many choosing to believe that this is true, that this life is the only life there is. If so, it means you should just live it up right now because time's running out and it makes this whole life actually pretty sad because every single day you just have less and less time. And it makes death really final. But because Jesus is alive, it means that those who died trusting in him have not perished, but are alive with him. It means if Jesus is alive, we have hope yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You see, my family does this um, kind of tradition every, every birthday. Every birthday after dinner, as we're serving dessert, we, uh, each person will share three highs from their last year. So you kind of need to survey your last year, what you've done, what you've experienced, and you get to share your top three moments from the last year. And depending on how your year has gone, some years it's like, wow, that was a really tough year. I'm really glad it's over. I'm ready for the next year ahead because some years are just hard. But sometimes there's really wonderful years and you have a really hard time choosing just three highs and you're like, man, I'm bummed this year's over because it's been so good. If Jesus is alive, it means that our greatest highs actually aren't behind us. They're always before us. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, talking about the promise of Jesus, his coming, says this about his rule and his reign. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Heaven with Jesus is not a static place. It is dynamic. It is ever-increasing and growing. 
the extent of Jesus' rule and reign never stop increasing. The peace of Jesus never stops growing and increasing. Life eternal with Jesus is not just this static, boring place. It's ever increasing and getting better and better and better and better. Because he's alive, Christians, it means this, your very best days are ahead of you. That is such good news. Our highest highs are ahead of us. Our loudest laughs are ahead of us. Our most meaningful moments are ahead of us. Our best meals are ahead of us. Our happiest hours are ahead of us. Our biggest achievements are ahead of us. Our very best days are always in front of us. We never have to just be stuck in trying to relive the glory days or being sad that we're running out of time because if Jesus is alive, we have hope for every season. Don't you long to believe that that's true? How might that actually change your life, the way that you live, if you actually believe that that was true? the thing that comes crashing down if Jesus did not raise from the dead in verse 19. If Jesus is dead, we Christians are the most pitiable people on earth. Everyone ought to look at us and just feel really sad for us. If Jesus is dead, Christians are the most sad and pathetic humans on the planet. Because as one man said, they face life with nothing better than a Christ of their own devotional dreams. If Jesus is dead, Christian, you are wasting your life foolishly trying to live according to some made-up moral standard. You're missing out on all the fun stuff. You're believing stupid lies. You're, meaning, you're meaninglessly suffering. And people ought to look at you and just be sad because you're wasting your life. As Paul would say later in this chapter in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if Jesus is alive, if Jesus is alive, then Christians, we are of all people most to be envied. If Jesus is alive, well, because Jesus is alive, we of all people are most to be envied because it means that the Christian that truly follows Christ and walks with the Spirit is living the most full, joyful, meaningful, significant, exciting life possible. If it's true that Jesus is alive, then it means that the Christian life is the greatest life possible. I wonder how many Christians would actually affirm that to be true. How many of us just think the Christian life is drab and boring? Or like it was shared last week, it's just kind of on the bunny slopes of the mountain. It's just kind of dull and boring and gentle and not exciting. But if Jesus is actually alive, it means you get to be a part of the most important thing that's ever been around. You are a part of something that's eternal. You are a part of something that's cosmic and massive. 
and you play a really prominent part in the story. It means that everything about your life changes. Your whole value system changes. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. We tend to not like this particular teaching of Jesus, but we've got to see it together. Yep, go back one. Luke chapter 12. He said to the man who had invited him to, to dinner, to a banquet, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. Now, is that not exactly how we always throw parties? When we throw parties, we like to invite our friends, our people that are cool and fun and exciting and maybe even rich, and we actually hope that one day they will invite us to their parties. Jesus says, don't do that, lest that actually happen. Here's what he says. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid when? When? At the resurrection of the just or of the righteous. Live your life like that. Live your life differently, banking that you're getting everything you could ever want at the resurrection. When Jesus returns again in glory and we have died and he raises us up and to new life and eternal life with him on that day, you'll know it will have all been worth it. Here's how John Piper says it so beautifully. He says this, Without the resurrection, we tend to want our pleasures here and now. So we avoid risk and danger and difficulty and pain and discomfort and frustration and so therefore our love is tame and bland and weak and cautious and timid. But Jesus says, if you believe that your joy in the resurrection will make up for a thousand losses and a thousand self-denials and sacrifices and a thousand dangers and risks here, then we will live a life of adventure and risk and love. And we will be sustained by the joy set before us. And that will be the kind of life that we all dream about from time to time because we were made for it. Christ died and rose again to make it possible. The resurrection changes everything about our lives. It makes this life the greatest, most exciting, most meaningful life possible. And it means we'll live our lives giving and loving and serving and risking and doing things dangerous for Jesus, knowing that what's coming for us will make up for a thousand losses. No matter how much we lose here, it will be worth it when we see Christ face to face. The resurrection changes our life today to make it the greatest life possible. To mean we can leave the greatest legacy. See, there's something within the, the human heart that as we age, we, we long to, to not waste our lives. To to do something that matters, to leave something behind, maybe for our kids, for the next generation. We want to leave a legacy of sorts behind. We want to feel like our life counted for something. But no amount of money will do it. No company that you start and pass on will leave a real legacy. No special memories will do it. 
No groundbreaking accomplishments will do it. But spending your life following Jesus will. Because if you spend your life following Jesus, you're showing others the greatest source of joy. And that reaps eternal fruit. As it's been famously said, as Christians, are we not nothing more than beggars simply telling other beggars where the bread is? Friends, that's the only kind of legacy that really lasts. See, right, I don't know if any of you guys are sports fans, but it's the, it's the NFL playoffs right now. It's just, I mean, it kind of takes over our, our culture. And there's all this discussion all the time. Whenever there's playoffs or big sporting events, there's always big questions about what's, what's this season, these playoffs going to do for so-and-so's legacy? right? Man, if this person wins the Super Bowl, what will it do for their legacy? And, and which player has the most to gain for, for their legacy if they win this year? And, and which players, if they fail this year, it's going to hurt their legacy the most? But you know what's crazy? In like 200 years, which in the course of human history is a blip on the radar, in 200 years, we might not even be playing football anymore. No one's going to know our names. No one's going to know the, who won the Super Bowl in 2024 and the quarterback that did it and how great his legacy. No one's going to care about that. And yet right now, it's everything. That's true for all of us. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but in just a couple generations, nobody's going to care about who you are. Nobody's going to remember who you are. Nobody's going to remember your name. I mean, maybe they do. But then just fast forward a couple more generations and then they for sure forgot about you. We want to make our life count and matter and leave a legacy that matters. Follow Jesus. Bank everything on him. This is the invitation of the resurrection. You want a legacy? You want the best life possible? You want your sins forgiven? You want hope beyond the grave? Then build here. Build on the rock of Christ. Build here on the solid truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. He's alive. Jesus wins. Bank it all on him. That's the invitation of the resurrection. And we not miss how much this matters, how much it changes everything about our lives. Let's pray together.